Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Cybernia, a podcast exploring science in Ireland and beyond. I'm Sylvia Leatham and with me in studio today are Lenny Antonelli and Trina O'Connell. You can find us on the web at cybernia.ie and on Twitter under at Cybernia or you can email us at podcast at cybernia.ie. Coming up on the show today, we'll be talking about what it means to be human and what it means to be a little bit more than human with a look at the latest exhibition in the science gallery, Human Plus, and an interview with Kevin Warwick, a.k.a. Captain Cyborg. We also have an interview with Galway-based psychologist Brian Hughes about the problems scientists encounter when trying to communicate with the general public. And we'll have our usual look at cultural matters and upcoming events. But first, let's take a quick look at some news stories that have come across our radar. Uh, Trina, I believe you have an Irish story for us from the wonderful Tyndall Institute. I do indeed. Um, researchers at the Tyndall National Institute in Cork, in conjunction with scientists at the University of Pisa, have developed a microchip for sensing breathing rate from a distance. The chip uses ultra-wide band radar to measure sub-centimetre movements, and this is the first time such a device has been made on a single chip. And the chip sends out pulses and records the echo as the pulse bounces back off the object being observed. So the chip has many potential uses for detecting small movements. But in particular, researchers have suggested using it to observe breathing of patients and babies without having to attach the monitor directly to the person. So you could set up a monitoring system that would allow you to set an alarm to call for help where the person has breathing difficulties or where breathing stops altogether without having to have someone permanently watching the person. Okay, sounds like it would be very Potentially useful. Potentially massively for, useful, yeah. Yeah, yeah, maybe for old people as well. For uh, old people, it's been suggested for maybe babies so that, you know, if they do stop breathing, you can come and help them immediately rather than finding out later okay, for so mothers and stuff. It would help prevent cot death. That sort of idea, perhaps. Interesting. Uh, I also have a story that is related to breathing and it's a new US study that has shown that kids with cystic fibrosis who play a certain type of video game can improve their breathing performance. Uh, You might know that cystic fibrosis is a chronic lung disease. It leads to the buildup of mucus in the lungs and progressive disability. And conventional techniques for treatment involve clearing the mucus with breathing exercises. These exercises are called huffing. Uh, But that can be time consuming and boring for patients and not very comfortable to do. Uh, But now an admittedly small study of 13 children led by Peter Bingham of the University of Vermont shows that breathing techniques practiced during specially made video games seem to help kids stick to their huffing treatment regimes after the study has finished. Uh, And uh, the children also showed an improved ability to take deep breaths after playing the video games. Uh, So (coughs) what are these games like? Uh, Students from a Vermont college actually helped to develop the games. They interviewed kids with cystic fibrosis about their gaming habits and preferences and incorporated their feedback into the development of two games. One game was a racing car game. The other was a sort of treasure hunt game. Now, the unusual thing about these games is that instead of using the usual kind of handheld controller, players control what's happening on screen using a digital spirometer. That's a device that you can breathe into and it measures the volume of air breathed in and out by the lungs. So players have to breathe in certain ways to interact with the games. Um, Dr. Bingham said about the study uh, that we think these results show that using spirometer games can be a good way to involve children in respiratory therapy. 
I have a story that uh, any fans of Jacques Cousteau uh, will love. Um, a team of Irish and British scientists is set to explore the depths of the Atlantic Ocean as part of a research trip that will be filmed by National Geographic. Um, the researchers believe the area is home to a hydrothermal vent ecosystem of previously unknown animals. The expedition will aim to map the ecosystem 3,000 metres below sea level at the bottom of the Atlantic. A new crust is forming here as tectonic plates are slowly being pulled apart at the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, creating hydrothermal vents. Hydrothermal vents are cracks in the Earth's crust, uh, usually in volcanically active areas. Um, here, huge volumes of hot seawater come up through the ocean floor and are enriched with volcanic minerals. And bacteria thrive on these minerals and in turn support a rich ecosystem of animals such as crustaceans, snails, tube worms, fish and octopus. The expedition will take place on board the Celtic Explorer, Ireland's national marine research vessel. The 25-day voyage uh, will leave Galway in July and uh, interestingly it will deploy Holland 1, which is the Celtic Explorer's remotely operated vehicle, uh, to film the hydrothermal vent system and a National Geographic uh, team will be on board. Now for any secondary school students um, who might be interested in this, uh, Patrick Collins, who's a researcher at NUI Galway who's taking part in the project, he's organised a competition that will give students the opportunity to put their name on one of the many newly discovered species they expect to find down there. Um, the competition is open to all secondary school students uh, across the UK and Ireland um, and to enter students must design their own um, imagined deep sea hydrothermal vent creature and uh, anyone interested can find out more about that competition at blogs.ucc.ie forward slash wordpress forward slash bees that's b-e-e-s Now, the Human Plus exhibition is currently taking place at the Science Gallery in Dublin. Um, the exhibition explores the intersection of biology and machines and looks at topics such as cybernetics, directed evolution, and whether we can live forever through digital means. Now, Sylvia, you went to a talk as part of the exhibition by Gordon Wallace, who was speaking about um, organic bionics. What can you tell us about that? That's right. Uh, I went along to see uh, Gordon Wallace, who's actually Belfast-born, but he's been living in Australia since the 1980s and he's now working at the University of Wollongong. Uh, He's the director of the Intelligent Polymer Research Institute there. Uh, So he's talking about organic bionics, which he defined as the fusion of man-made and living organisms, or sorry, living systems. Uh, Bionics is essentially biology plus electronics. Uh, So things like cardiac pacemakers and bionic ears. Uh, Actually, the easiest way to sort of picture this is... um, to think back to, uh, if you remember, the Bionic Woman uh, television series yep. in the 70s. Uh, you might be a little bit young I, for this, <laughs> but some of our <laughs> listeners might remember it. But uh, Wallace actually showed the opening credits of Bionic Woman during the talk, which I thought was a bit of, uh, you know, good fun. Um, so just to refresh people's memories, that was a series that uh, starred Lindsay Wagner and it was a spin-off from The Six Million Dollar Man. And she played a tennis pro who was almost killed in a skydiving accident accident and then her life is saved by these uh, bionic surgical implants B- pretty much like Steve Austin's six million dollar man uh, so she got like you know uh, amazing hearing and uh, greatly strengthened uh, right arm and and really strong legs so she could run fast um, so since that was in the 70s and uh, we've made all sorts of progress since then but actually Wallace's first point was that organic bionics is actually nothing new Uh, Going right back to the 1790s, an Italian scientist called Luigi Galvani was actually the first person to combine biology and electronics to do bionics. Um, He accidentally discovered that uh, he was actually he was doing um, dissections of 
dead frogs. He was trying to discover whether their testicles were contained in their legs, which he was convinced uh-huh. of. And he accidentally introduced a spark of electricity uh, to the dead legs of the frog. And to his surprise, the legs, the muscles actually moved. So he discovered that it was electricity, not like some other substance like water or air that moves muscles. Right. And that was actually a major breakthrough way back then, the 1790s. Uh, since then, uh, with the uh, practical applications of organic bionics, we have things like the bionic ear. Uh, so that's a, a cochlear implant that was invented by an Australian doctor called Graham Clark in the 70s. Um, that's actually kind of an interesting story because uh, Clark himself, his his own father was deaf and he so he's highly motivated to, to research and create this bionic ear. He was told for years that it couldn't be done. Um, and he's actually written a, a, a book that Wallace recommended called Sounds of Silence. Um, but now nowadays, thousands of people have these implants thanks to uh, Clark's invention of the cochlear implant, um, which provides a sense of sound to deaf people. Um, so that like there's a few parts to the system and it's uh, it's implanted in the skin behind your ear. So there's like an external system of a microphone and a speech processor and a transmitter. And then there's an internal receiver and there's electrodes which send impulses to nerves in the ears and then on to the brain. Um, I was actually looking at a website today that recreated the uh, what this would sound like to a deaf person. And uh, it actually sounds a little bit like a Dalek speaking which I mean it's kind of cool it is kind of cool yeah yeah and uh, and quite amazing like if you if you were deaf like it's a, a major advance absolutely um, so a couple of other um, bionic uh, organic bionic developments then another uh, really interesting area is epilepsy detection um, and seizure prediction they're, they're actually doing trials at the moment in Australia as well in Melbourne in a hospital there um, trying to give epilepsy sufferers uh, like a 5 to a 15 minute warning before they have a seizure um, and they've done the, these trials where they put electrodes into a patient's brain and they connect that uh, to a device in the person's chest and then uh, this device will detect uh, any changes in electrical activity in the brain and then that will send uh, a message to a pager that the patient will carry around and they will will know then that they have a few minutes before they're going to have a seizure so it gives them some time So they can do either, what they need to do to prepare, yeah Exactly, okay. yeah, whether it's take medication or go or to a safe place or safe, or, yeah. yeah, yeah, so that's that's a amazing advancement and uh, because around 50 million people around the world suffer from epilepsy Really? Wow, so. Um, so within five years, actually, these devices will probably be on the market. Wow. So that's uh, something to uh, look forward to for uh, epilepsy sufferers. OK, well, thanks very much, Sylvia. Um, and for anyone interested, the Human Plus exhibition runs until the 24th of June at the Science Gallery in Dublin. And you can find out more at sciencegallery.com. Kevin Warwick is a professor of cybernetics at the University of Reading, where he carries out research into artificial intelligence, robotics and biomedical engineering. In 1998, he had an RFID chip implanted in his arm, and in 2002, he had a neural implant in his arm that could detect nerve signals. 
Kevin recently gave a talk at the Science Gallery as part of the SFI Speaker Series and afterwards Marie put questions to him about the future of computer-human interactions. Okay, you're known as the world's first cyborg. Can you explain to our listeners maybe what a cyborg is and how you became one? Okay, well a cyborg is a cybernetic organism. Anyone who's seen the film Terminator will have that definition. Um, Part human, part machine or part biology, part technology. Uh, For me... I've had a couple of implants. The first one just identified me to the computer in my room, so in my building rather, so it opened doors for me and switched on lights. So it was a, a sort of partial cyborg. But the last one, my nervous system was linked directly to a computer. So my brain signals uh, were sent to the computer, which then we could operate pieces of technology. So for example, my brain signals were able to control a robot hand via the internet on another continent and also feel how much force the robot hand was applying. So being part human, part technology, and giving me abilities that were extra, sort of plus on top of enhancement as far as the humans are concerned, with technology that was integral in my body. I think all of those things put together means that I was a cyborg. And someone on Twitter asked me to ask you this, how come you haven't died from septicemia yet? <laughs> it just seems that with, with the um, copper wires coming out, you mentioned that they broke off easily. Yeah, but yeah well they were, they were platinum wires, platinum, which is, sorry. platinum's fairly inert as far as the body's concerned. Um, there are dangers associated with all this, but uh, we, we had to watch um, whether there was any infection when I had the implant. It was a, a critical factor. The surgeon said, um, if infection got into my nervous system, because here they, they cut away all the protective sheath around the nervous system, fired this implant into it, and if infection had got into it, I would have lost the use of my hand. So we had to be careful all of the time that infection didn't get in, uh, but it, it didn't. We were look. I mean, to be honest, the the body put up around where the wires went in, when when we pulled the wires out, there was a bit, it looked like a cork. I mean, it was body material that had grown to stop infection going in. So the body puts up a lot of defensive mechanisms which actually help at what we were trying to do. If it's so, well, not easy, but if it's so doable, why aren't we all doing it right now? Why, why don't we have implants like the bidirectional neural one you have? Um, Well, I think we do see uh, implants being used for cochlear implants, for Parkinson's disease, for heart pacemakers, for therapeutic purposes where if somebody has a problem, so this corrects that problem to a certain extent at least. So that, that mentally we seem okay and there's funding to produce the things and and a lot of the the companies that develop and, and sell them make a lot of money out of it. In terms of enhancement, um, I would say about 10 years ago, if I had said we can look at human enhancement, then I would be called crazy, or what are you talking about, or this isn't real, no one's ever going to want it. Um, Within that 10 years, now here in Dublin, I mean, if, if people haven't been to the Human Plus exhibition, 
go and look at it because it opens your mind to the possibilities and I think the point is there is now a human plus exhibition there are now conferences people can discuss human enhancement but it's only a very recent thing uh, I think really in the last two or three years that you've been able to consider such a thing and at the moment there are very few experiments that have been conducted hopefully there will be more it does require ethical approval scientifically to carry out the things and I guess within the university within a company environment they are generally a conservative lot and saying I'm going to put this implant into my brain a lot of university ethics committees would say hold on a minute why are you doing that sort of thing well I'm doing it for research I want to well I mean, so I, I think there are questions we need a mind shift. At least now we do accept the possibility of human enhancement, human plus, but experiments need to be carried out. Hopefully in the next few years we'll see a lot more. And here's what people might worry about. Plastic surgery started out as something that would reconstruct a face blown apart by a bomb in war, and now it's ended up with um, people wanting to look like Jordan. Yes. So what about human enhancement? It might start out as something, like you said, an extra sense that, that can help you every day. It might turn into, I want to be the best bionic man or woman in the world yeah. and squish everyone else in mankind. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I think we have to face things like that are and could happen. I mean, in some sense, taking what you're saying, I mean, I would, I, I would like to communicate in a whole new way. What's wrong with that? But someone else could say, well, no, why should you communicate in that way? I can't communicate in that way. So it's a smaller version or lesser version of what you're saying. But even then, there are ethical questions to it. There are commercial possibilities. If you and I have a company that makes neural implants and somebody comes along to us and says, I want to have the ability to be able to use this for military purposes. Do we sell them that technology? Well, we probably would if we're a commercial enterprise. So then they use it for military purposes. Is that good or is it bad? Well, it depends what military purposes, you know, if it's yeah. for our team, if it's for our side, then we might say, well, it's a good military purpose and maybe they should be allowed to do it. If it's for the other side, then maybe they shouldn't. But who are we to say if we're just a commercial enterprise? So just at the moment, weapon systems, which countries are they sold to, which not? There are some questions and companies have to watch who they sell the technology to. So it may be a purely technical thing um, subject to political concerns and, and so on, who, where the company is based, who we're working for or with and so on. So it could be a simpler answer to it, which is normal. You know, a lot of companies face the same sort of question, not just in a, a normal way. But there are questions there to do with enhancement, basic ethical questions. If I want an enhancement to give me extra senses, if I want an enhancement to communicate in a whole new way, why not? You know, who are you to say, no, you can't do it? It's my right to do it as an individual if I want to, is one way of looking at it. The other way would say, well, if you're going to have abilities way beyond humans, should you do something like that? So there are, there's enormous ethical issues with it even now. Now, you mentioned for your next implant that it was going to go a lot deeper than the one in the arm. Yes. So can you tell me a bit about that? Well, it may well be the same type of implant that I had before, but I am looking... I mean, I have to say, there's a, a short-fire answer I'll give you in a second, but, but how you're asking here, yes, it's, it's a, a brain implant, 
um, I do want to communicate brain to brain. Uh, the previous implant linked up with my wife's nervous system, wife Irena, it was great, but she is extremely worried that the brain implant is dangerous, so she's standing back from that one. Um, I, I, I think I can understand why, but it does mean I will need somebody else to link my brain up to. It, I, you have loads of students lining up. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, to be perfectly honest, I do get a lot of students who would like implants, and even the neural type of implants, which is difficult ethically to start putting neural implants in students, and hence the the magnet implants that we have. We have I have three students now that have magnets implanted in their fingers and at least they're, they're relatively happy that we can uh, research with them. I mean essentially we, we wrap coils of wire around the fingers and then stimulate the coils with um, different sensory input which they can feel through vibration. So we get away with that uh, but they, they would want the, the neural implants. So I, I um, do want. So I don't think there's a lack of volunteers. It's more ethical approval. And, and my wife's uh, she's already said she doesn't want me linking up to an attractive young woman. I, I don't know, it's a purely sexist statement, but she made it, so uh, I've no idea why that is. So. <laughs> Theoretically, how would that communication work? Um, well, it's the same sort of thing that we've already done. If you, you realise... We'll, we'll bypass the, what you mentioned yeah, yeah, that's right. Irina moving her arm and you getting pulses. I mean, we go, we go through the, the routine at the moment, which is like telegraphic communication, which is what we've already achieved. So you think of how a telegraph works, first of all, which somebody thinks about what signals they want to transmit. Those thoughts are converted into movements of their finger, which presses a button. That's into the wires. Ding, 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 long distances. At the other end, you get sounds in terms of dots and dashes, or something can move, whichever way you want. Those audio or visual signals are then converted back to some sort of code. So it's a very, very trivial coded message that is sent down wires. That's how the telegraph works. We now take out, we don't need to move, we will pick up the signals from the nervous system into the wires, and at the other end, the signals from the wires go straight into the nervous system. That's what we've done so far. So it's changed the interface. That's all, really. If we send the signals directly from the brain into the wires and take the signals from the wires directly into the brain, then we've got telegraphic communication from brain to brain. I'm sure it's going to be extraordinarily complex, but I'm really looking forward to your first transmission. Oh, me too, <laughs> me too, yeah. So do we have any volunteers who want to connect to Kevin Warwick's brain? Um, I can't say I'd be interested, though, seeing as I'm not an attractive young woman, maybe I would be a suitable candidate. <laughs> That's very true. Um, we'll be talking more about Kevin Warwick in a few minutes. But first, we have another interview for your listening pleasure. Uh, recently, some of the Cybernia team attended a very interesting talk about science communication by Brian Hughes, a biological psychologist from NUI Galway. I think Hughes is a fantastic communicator and he runs a great blog called thesciencebit.net where he analyzes media coverage of science stories and it's definitely worth checking that out. I caught up with him after his recent talk to discuss how science communication can be improved. Uh, just before we play the interview, I should just clarify that Hughes uses the term falsification a couple of times. In science, falsification simply means that 
a statement could be shown to be false by an observation or ex- an experiment and something scientists see as important to an evidence-based scientific method. So Dr Hughes, you were speaking tonight about science communication problems. How would you characterise those problems? I think um, one of the biggest problems in communicating science is in emphasising the fact that science is not so much a body of knowledge, but a way of producing knowledge. So I mentioned how it is a process rather than a product. Mm. And most people in the general public consider science to be something that is produced by scientists, and therefore they are emphasizing the bottom line. They want to know, how does this knowledge affect me? Whereas most scientists are interested in how is this knowledge produced, and therefore how sound is it? And that is, the I think, the biggest uh, breach there is between scientists, communicators, and non-scientist audiences that scientists have an intuitive uh, expectation that science is simply full of caveats, full of complexities, but it is a reliable way of accumulating knowledge in the long term, whereas audiences have uh, an expectation that science actually can give you quick, certain answers in the here and now. And that uh, bridge is often not, uh, is, is not, is not, not made between the two expectations that can be a barrier to communication. So there's a, almost a fundamental disjoint there between public and scientists? Yes, and I think that um, it's very easy to say that the public are not scientifically literate, um, but it's probably uh, less relevant than saying that scientists are not particularly public literate in a sense. Scientists have a very poor appreciation that this is what most people believe is the case with science. Uh, and why should the general public be scientifically literate in an extreme sense, given that they're not scientists? Mm. It's far more important for scientists to have an awareness of how the public thinks uh, than for the public to have the awareness of how science is actually done. Mind you, I would generally be of the view that the more scientific literacy there is in the general population, the better, because people make better consumer decisions, better political decisions, better choices in life Mm. when they take an evidence-based approach. Yeah, that was actually my next question is what is the the fallout of poor science communication? Like who suffers? Well, if you take science as a process of knowledge generation that emphasizes objectivity and testing and retesting and replication, that emphasizes experimentation and falsification, uh, then uh, any decision making in life will be uh, affected positively by scientific literacy and negatively by scientific illiteracy. So when you look at something as uh, important as, say, the credit crunch, and you trace back the way in which people formed conclusions based on the world around them, and you see that so much of the damage was caused by people having unrealistic uh, interpretations of what was going on around them, not following the evidence, not taking a falsification approach to see what might be wrong with this explanation as opposed to what is the explanation telling me, All of these non-scientific ways of looking at the world uh, contributed negatively uh, to the uh, worldwide um, uptake on uh, credit and uh, and the subsequent crash that that generated. So there are some people would argue that scientific literacy uh, is very important for even world peace in the sense that uh, when people make decisions that are based on something other than objective evidence, they become so unpredictable and so biased and so... Um, self-serving that uh, the, the outcomes are almost always negative. I see. 
Um, focusing specifically then on the media um, mm. and the portrayal of science in the media and often uh, misrepresented, um, who's to blame in those situations? Is it journalists? Is it scientists? Is it PR people? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a reasonable uh, uh, question to raise in the sense that it's very easy to say that journalists aren't doing it right. Um, but journalists are doing a very uh, difficult job under trying circumstances. Uh, the vast majority are not science journalists, so they're trying to cover very many different domains of thinking and professional work. Uh, I would think that the ultimate responsibility does lie with the scientific community who, if you like, are vocationally uh, honor-bound uh, to disseminate their knowledge. And if they are not doing it right, if the knowledge isn't ending up in the right place in the right form, then they, their responsibility um, uh, has been, uh, has been, has been uh, uh, foundering. So um, while there, it is a complex situation in the sense that audiences have their own expectations, which you might call biases, and then there is all of these middle uh, parties, such as PR companies, um, uh, maybe political blocks or just uh, uh, people with vested interests of various kinds who, who, have a, who want certain beliefs to persist and other beliefs to be uh, ignored. Uh, so it is a complex situation. Um, and my recommendation would be that scientists, given that they have primary responsibility to make sure science is understood, that they, first of all, themselves become literate in the way the world works and the way uh, community, communities work, the way media works, the way culture accumulates knowledge and so on. This is what I mean by mm. becoming publicly literate. Okay, and that was my next question as well, is how can we improve science communication? So, Yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a superficial element to that and a deep element to that. The superficial element uh, is very important that scientists need to become um, more... Uh, linguistically adept, in other words, to have better presentation skills, better writing skills, um, choose better words, choose better uh, metaphors, uh, use metaphors, and so on, um, and think about how to package what uh, they are working on in a way that people can understand. Um, but there's a deeper level as well that uh, scientists need to have an understanding of um, where the public are coming from, uh, how science works. A lot of scientists are, um, uh, are poor philosophers of science, but some awareness of where science comes from, why objectivity is better than subjectivity and so on, why falsification is better than confirmation and so on, um, as, as well as the way the media works, the way people get their knowledge from the world around them. So there's this underlying field of study that scientists should uh, have an awareness of. Otherwise, they're speaking... Um, uh, into a crowd that is uh, chattering away among itself and they're not being heard, they're not effectively communicating with their mm. audience. And would you have any advice for science journalists then, how they could improve uh, the communication of science? Um, well, I think the um, one, one fundamental uh, principle in science is uh, to appreciate the scientific context. In other words, every study is just one part of a puzzle. It's an incremental step. And it cannot really be understood or interpreted without also balancing against it all the previous research in a particular field. I think science journalists if, are probably guilty of focusing on studies in isolation to quite a large extent. And uh, many science stories in media would be uh, greatly enhanced if some attempt was made to cover other research 
and to establish what is was the understanding of this point before this particular study came along. Um, because a lot of studies, are, it is said that they're blown out of proportion or they're taken out of context or whatever. Um, and that is true, but it's probably remedied uh, by science journalists uh, having some attempt and maybe going to another scientist to get a second opinion, to get a background on a particular question so that they can uh, add to the story some summary of what previous research has shown uh, about a particular question. And then we can better interpret the new study against that background. Thank you very much, Dr. Hughes. And I should note that Hughes was speaking at a Dublin event organised by the Irish Skeptics Society, an organisation that was set up in 2002 to, quote, promote science and critical thinking and sometimes challenge extraordinary claims. They do six lectures a year where they invite excellent communicators to speak on a range of topics and past speakers include Ben Goldacre, Richard Wiseman and Simon Singh. You can find out more about the Irish Skeptics Society at uh, irishskeptics.org. Now, Trina, you attended both of uh, the talks that we had uh, interviews from. Uh, you were at Kevin Warwick uh, and you were at Brian Hughes. Uh, now, they're actually quite different speakers. What did you they're think They're spectacularly different. Um, we, I, I dragged my poor hapless boyfriend along to both events. So if I say we a lot, you, you can imagine poor John in the background. Okay. Um, so we went along to Brian Hughes on, was it a Tuesday night? Or a Wednesday. It might have been Wednesday. It was a Wednesday. And Hugh's talk I found very interesting. Um, he discussed a lot about where we fall down in communicating science. And while he didn't have any, he had little bits of science, but he didn't have an overall scientific theme he wanted to push at us. It was more about the communication of science. So mm-hmm. from a practical skills point of view, it was kind of more skills orientated. Say. Mm-hmm. And the following day, we went to see Kevin Warwick. And it was just completely different this guy is out to entertain with his science this is the cybernetics guy cybernetics yeah so it's very interesting and it's very whiz bang spectacular science fiction style science and I found myself afterwards really wanting more science coming out of it now I had seen Kevin Warwick do the Royal Institute lectures back in 2000 about 15 or something didn't have a job happy days spent my Christmas (laughs) watching telly and it was brilliant when I was 15 but I'm not 15 anymore and it's I find it frustrating that he gives this talk about what could be a fascinating topic that has so many linked pieces so you know biological compatible materials to butcher implants with the people who are programming these implements implants are clearly extremely skilled people but I just found what was lacking was as Brian Hughes says scientists like to find out how so perhaps it's my failing as being a scientist I'm a scientist um, that I wanted to know more about how it was done rather than what he did because what he did was very interesting but I just found it was too sensationalist and not enough not even technical but not enough detail there was not enough detail there was not enough how I came to this because what you find from reading a lot of scientific literature is that a lot of it is uh, about a third of a scientific paper is usually a blueprint on how to go about doing it yourself you know they put the methods out there so you can repeat Mm. the experiment now from a public science talk I wouldn't expect to be able to go out and start implanting things (laughs) into people's brains although I would hope you wouldn't do that Trina uh, I can get ethical approval I'm sure eventually um (laughs) But I would have liked to know more about what they were made from, how they were made, how they interacted, rather than 
this happened and he had video clips from um, this very pretty looking discovery program he was on which again it was very pretty not enough hardcore science for me as mm-hmm. a science fanatic say um, he had an interview with Jeremy Clarkson that he showed a clip from and I don't think Jeremy Clarkson is the first person I would go to for a science clip <laughs> and it was just there was a little robot running around the place on a little it was well it was rolling around the place let's be honest robots roll they don't have legs and if it ran out of a place that was a, had electricity going through, it was like a bumper car, say, the electricity came up through the floor, um, it would scoot around until it found it. And Warwick likened this to a biological imperative. And to me, I found that was an analogy that was a step too far. But that might be my need to communicate things accurately from a scientific point of view rather than necessarily from a public capturing interest point of view so yeah the the two interview the two talks were very very different now they were both very enjoyable I must say I did enjoy the Warwick talk but what I wanted from it I didn't get I still felt I gained more knowledge from Brian Hughes lecture where I gained I gained a a good evening and some conversation from it from the Kevin Warwick talk but Mm. it it wasn't what I was hoping for shall we say maybe it wasn't quite pitched at the straight scientific audience more at a general public raising awareness engagement level he's good at engaging the public I must say now he's very good at that thanks for that Trina so before we get into our culture corner section of this episode I want to let you know about the launch of a new part of the show in coming weeks called Ask a Scientist. Do you want to know what makes the sky blue? Why the toast always lands butter side down? Or what's the most poisonous animal in the world? If you have a question that you've always wanted to know the answer to, then email us at podcast at and we promise to get a scientist to answer your question. No question is too stupid or too complicated, so don't be shy. We'd love to hear from you. Now back to Culture Corner. And this time Lenny has been reading a book called... Endless Forms Most Beautiful, The New Science of Evo Devo and the Making of the Animal Kingdom by Sean B. Carroll. Uh, Evo Devo sounds like a band name, Lenny. Uh, what's yeah, that all yeah, about? It's, it's going to be my band name, yeah, after reading this book, definitely. Um, well, Evo Devo uh, is essentially evolutionary developmental biology. Um, and Carroll sort of, I suppose, obviously points out that every single animal um, is subject to two uh, key processes, these being the process of evolution and the process of development. Um, and to really understand the amazing diversity of the animal kingdom, we need to understand both of these process and how, processes and how they um, relate to each other. So um, essentially, it is changes in development from the embryo over thousands and millions of years that cause evolution of the adult forms. But we kind of tend to think of evolution only in terms of the adults we think of you know what our ancestors looked like we don't actually think of the processes that occur in the um, embryo over the eons um so <clears throat> evo devo offered its first real insights um when genes involved in fruit fly development that's drosophila were first identified in the 1980s um now, until then, it was always presumed that if two animals were sort of structurally different, that if they looked very different, that the genes involved in their development must be, you know, quite different as well. But actually, this turned out to be wrong. Um, in fact, most of the genes that control the development of fruit fly anatomy um, have counterparts that do similar jobs in most other animals, um, including in ourselves. Um, the development of body parts such as eyes, limbs, hearts, um, that may be vastly different in structure 
in different animals uh, is often governed by the same genes. Um, and in fact, in all complex animals, we share a, a common toolkit of master genes that govern the formation and patterning of bodies and um, body parts. <coughs> and uh, I believe that humans and chimps are very, very close genetically. There's only about, I think, 2% difference in the gene code. Yeah, exactly. But one, I mean, one of the amazing things isn't necessarily the similarities between humans and chimps. It's when you get down to the similarities between the genes that control you know, development in humans and flies, for example, that you start to become amazed at just how um, the very same genetic toolkit has been modified for different uses across animals that are incredibly different. Oh. Um, and this raises the obvious question that um, uh, Carol uses the phrase toolkit genes for genes that control, you know, the key structural components of animals. Um, but, and Wally points out that there are great similarities um, in the toolkit genes between animals that are incredibly different. He asks the obvious question of how do differences arise mm. if um, the toolkit genes are so similar? <laughs> does, he, does he answer that question? I he hope does. he does. Uh, he does indeed, yeah. <laughs> he points out that just about 1.5% of our DNA um, encodes the 25,000 or so proteins in our bodies. Um, and it's these proteins that do the work in our cells and in our bodies. Um, but another 3% of our DNA is regulatory DNA. It's what he calls genetic switches. So when a biologist talks about a gene, um, they mean the specific stretch of DNA that encodes a protein. But each gene may have numerous genetic switches that regulate exactly what this, uh, what the gene does. And so a gene may have, you know, various different genetic switches that allow it to act differently in different parts of an animal across different animals, meaning the same gene can do different things in different different parts of an animal or in different different uh, organisms. Do you have some examples of that? Um, I do. I'll get on to them in a minute if you can wait a second. Um, okay, <laughs> I can. Um, so. I mean, there are many ways to change how a gene is used, and this has created tremendous variety in body designs and in the patterning of individual structures and in animals. Um, one example is uh, in fruit flies, there's a gene called eyeless, and it's named eyeless because when a mutation of it occurs, the fly develops without eyes. Now, strikingly, this gene has a counterpart in humans, and in humans, mutations in this gene cause the development of an ind individual where the iris in the eye may be reduced or else entirely absent. Now, our eyes are obviously hugely different than those of the fruit fly, um, but this gene eyeless has been found to be associated with eye formation in all sorts of creatures. Um, another example um, that comes to mind is a gene called listless. Um, now, this, this gene is known to play a role in the development of limbs in fruit flies. So as I was saying earlier, the fruit fly is the animal where a lot of these um, developmental genes were first found. But it also has been found to play a role in limbs, in crustaceans, in spiders, in centipedes. That in itself isn't that surprising because these, like the fruit fly, are members of the arthropod group. Um, they're very related. Um, but what is surprising is that the listless gene is also involved in the formation of all sorts of sort of appendages that stick out from animals, such as chicken legs um, and fish fins. I just keep thinking of the film The Fly and thinking <laughs> maybe it's not that far off. Maybe not indeed, yeah. Um, so essentially, genetic these genetic switches, which are short stretches of DNA, um, they enable the toolkit genes to be used differently in different animals um, or in different parts of the same animal. Now, um, Carol, uh, uh, Sean B. Carroll, who wrote the book, believes that the huge success of two groups in particular, the arthropods, um, which includes the insects, the spiders and the crustaceans, and the vertebrates like us and fish and reptiles and birds, 
is down to our modularity. So we're divided up into repeating segments. We have that's, that's what modularity means. Yeah, it? yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So we have um, a series of different types of vertebrae with associated ribs. We have limbs that are modular as well. We have an upper limb, a lower limb. Then we have the digits. Um, in in arthropods, for example, you're familiar with a lobster or a centipede that is divided up into all different segments, mm. and each segment is divided up further into different appendages. Um, so what you can imagine is that having a variety of very similar parts of modular parts that repeat allows some of these parts over evolutionary time um, to develop new functions and become more specialized. So, for example, if you talk about um, the ancestor of um, maybe a lobster, for example, um, it might it's, its remote ancestor might have been a very simple creature that had lots of... Um, you know, walking legs, for example, that were all all perform the same function. But over time, these um, appendages can develop into um, ones that are function for walking, for for feeding, for reproducing, for filtering, mm. for all sorts of things, which allows it to become specialized and to adapt and to um, enter new environments. So going back to these genetic switches I was talking about, um, one interesting example is a fish called the stickleback fish, um, which is a freshwater fish in North America. And some forms of the stickleback fish live in the open water, um, and these have large spines to protect them from other fish that might come along and open their mouths and try and eat it. Um, but there are also bottom-dwelling forms of the stickleback fish, and these don't have spines. Um, and it turns out that's an advantage, as you might expect, because um, dragonfly larvae um, can make use of the spines to catch the, the fish and eat them. So in these bottom-dwelling forms, a genetic switch prevents a gene that's involved in making the spines from being expressed. So that gene's function is changed in one region, in one variety of this fish, but the genes can still perform functions um, in the varieties of the fish that have the spines, or even in other parts of the fish that don't have the spines. Um, so the switch enables the same gene to be used in a variety of ways. Um, now it's known that various populations of stickleback fish have lost their spines. Um, so this hasn't happened just once. So it shows that under the same environmental pressure, um, which is the dragonfly larvae catching these things by the spine and eating them, in different areas, um, the same genetic change will happen. So this evolutionary change is essentially pretty a pretty obvious one. It's reproducible. It's, it's the obvious evolutionary path for them to take. Ooh, interesting. No, the key question in any book review is, would you recommend this book? I would if you have an interest in evolutionary developmental biology or in genetics. Um, if, if you're sort of uh, new to, um, I don't know, reading about evolution in popular science, there might be maybe more classic books like maybe The Origin of Species or maybe The Selfish Gene, but something by Dawkins or something like that, um, that might be a bit more accessible on a first read. This is It can be um, a bit dense, but if you're interested in the subject, you will probably um, enjoy it. Okay, so for our events that are coming up over the next few weeks, the Bialtana Festival of Outdoor Science will be happening in the Waterford area from the 15th to the 22nd of May. There will be a range of events for primary school, secondary school and the general public, including an exhibition on Robert Mallet, the Irishman who was the father of seismology, guided walks and talks, including my favourite sort of walk, a bat walk. And for more information, visit livingearth.ie. At the same time, BioBlitz is a national biodiversity headcount that happens over 24 hours on the 20th to the 21st of May. Participating national parks are Ballycroy National Park, County Mayo, Dromore Woods, County Clare, Killarney National Park, County Kerry, Liffey Valley Park, Waterstown, Dublin 20 and Ravenwood Nature Reserve in County Wexford. Last year's champions were the Connemara National Park with a mass of 542 species counted over a 24-hour period. And there will also be a range of other activities happening at each site. Visit biodiversityireland.ie for more info. 
Now, astronomy.ie would like to remind everyone to point their best telescopes at Saturn on Friday the 13th of May. The moon, the bright star Spica and Saturn will all be shining in the south, making it particularly easy to find Saturn. And at the moment, there's a storm the size of Earth currently raging on Saturn's surface, so it should be an interesting sight. On Thursday, May 19th at 7pm, Dr Kate A. Fitzgerald will present a lecture entitled The Offensive Side of the Immune System in the RDS Concert Hall. The immune system is normally tightly controlled, but when it turns on the body's own cells, it leads to autoimmune diseases such as lupus and arthritis. Dr Fitzgerald's talk is aimed at introducing the general public to the immune mechanisms that lead to autoimmune disease. For more information and to book your free ticket, visit www.rds.ie forward slash science. And finally, the Blackrock Castle Observatory will be running their annual space camp in July and August, so you have some early notice. The space camp is designed for students aged 8 to 12 and has a range of activities, including building rockets and making landing craft for eggs. Each camp runs for a week and costs €95 per student. Visit bco.ie for further information and to book early. That's all we have time for this episode of Cybernia. Thank you very much for listening and thanks to all our guests. And thanks to Near FM and our producer Gavin Byrne. Don't forget you can find us on the web at cybernia.ie, on Twitter at at cybernia, or you can email us at podcast at cybernia.ie. (laughs) 